full of technology. It touches all aspects of our lives on this planet, and even beyond our own atmosphere. Have you ever thought about why the world around us is changing so quickly? At the heart of this is this tiny object, the microchip, a circuit of billions of electronic components that together create computing power and memory function. Without microchips, there would be no modern airplanes, mobile phones, or computers. By today's standards, looking after your health, active learning, or simply finding your way would be impossible. Imagine what would happen without microchips. Exactly. The first microchip was created to solve a problem of early computers, their size. Large glass vacuum tubes would control the flow of electrical current between electrodes. They encountered the tyranny of numbers phenomenon. The more complexity you tried to add to these computers, the more failures and downtime you would get. Every component had to be connected to every other one, and inevitably, these connections would fail. Then the integrated circuit chip came along, shrinking the work those large glass vacuum tubes and electrodes were doing all onto a small chip. In 1965, 10 years after the first silicon-based chip was made, Gordon Moore, who went on to co-found Intel, made a prediction that came to be known as Moore's Law. He noted that over the last 10 years, the number of transistors, resistors and diodes being put on each chip had been doubling each year and predicted that it would continue doing so for the next 10 years. 10 years later, he revised his prediction to doubling the number of components every two years. And over the past 60 years, Gordon Moore's prediction has been proven out. You may have heard the idea that you have more computing power in your pocket than they had aboard the Apollo 11 mission. Using the FLOPS measurements, which means floating point operations per second, the Apollo 11 computers had 12,250 FLOPS. The Cray supercomputer built in the 80s could perform 1.9 billion FLOPS. But the iPhone 12 can perform 11 trillion FLOPS. That's 900 million times faster than the Apollo 11 computers, and 5,000 times faster than the Cray 2 supercomputer. That's all while weighing only 164 grams, compared to the Cray computer's two and a half tons. To achieve this rapid increase, there have been some groundbreaking technological advancements. But one currently stands above all others. Just outside the small Dutch town, Veldhoven, sits a sprawling 225,000 square meter campus, home to nearly 20,000 employees. The campus is a mix of skyscrapers and warehouses and is home to a company that has been called the most important company you've never heard of. And they have developed what has been described as the most complex machine ever built. ASML is a major driving force behind microchip technology. The chances are that no matter where you are on Earth, you use devices that were partly made with ASML machines. Our machines multiply chips by means of lithography. 
a way of producing electronic circuits with industrial speed. This is a wafer, the cradle of the chip. One wafer contains tens to hundreds of microchips that each contain billions of transistors. And that number has been growing exponentially for more than 50 years. As our machines get better, the chips they make become faster, smaller, and cheaper. And so in turn, the world around us changes for the better as well. Together, we share the ambition to push technology further. Welcome to our world. Welcome to the ASML Experience Center. Welcome to the Engineering Matters podcast. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. This week, we're looking at how one of the most important and complex machines ever manufactured was created, and learn how these machines are able to etch transistors that are just a few nanometers wide onto silicon chips. And a nanometer is one millionth the size of a millimeter. That's even smaller than the smallest virus. This machine is called the EUV NXE and is in effect a giant printer, but rather than ink, it uses a directed beam of extreme ultraviolet light. And instead of paper, it etches electrical circuits onto silicon wafers to create chips. Chips are made up of tiny switches called transistors. Switching the transistor on or off encodes bits of information. From this simple arrangement, Amazingly powerful and sophisticated computer and memory chips can be built. Today's chips can contain tens of billions of transistors. Transistors are built by stacking and patterning different layers of materials. The combination of different materials, conductors, insulators and semiconductors, which only conduct under certain conditions, give transistors their switching abilities. And only one company in the world has machines capable of making the most advanced form of chip, ASML. The story of ASML began in 1984 as a small part of the Dutch technology giant Philips. ASML started as a small part of Philips. And this was a time where well, the semiconductor industry was, uh, uh, I would say, still very small, uh, still, uh, I would say, uh, being born. And at that time, I think everyone had uh, a chance to, to look at uh, equipment. And uh, for a long time, in fact, the, the people who used to make the chip were also developing their own equipment. So, for example, a company like IBM used to make the chips, but they also used to make everything to, to be able to, to make the, the chips. Christophe Fouquet has been in the semiconductor industry for 25 years, with the last 15 spent at ASML. He now sits on the board, working with suppliers, clients and their own engineers to develop the next generation of their chip-making machines. ASML were one of the first companies to make the chip manufacturing machines, while not being a chip manufacturer themselves. 
Their machines are sold to the major chip manufacturers like TSMC in Taiwan and Intel in California, so they can print chips with their specific designs. So the engineer were uh, learning faster and therefore improving the machine faster to the point where I think uh, in the late 80s, they came with the concept of uh, twin scan, which is still the platform we use today, where they had the idea to not have one stage, but two stages and both uh, expose the wafer, but also measure the wafer in, in parallel. And, and this was, uh, I would say, most probably the, the, the first real breakthrough in, uh, in ASML and uh, the, the, the beginning of the modern uh, history. The way those machines worked was by passing electricity through a mercury-filled bulb, which created blue light that could print features as low as a micron wide for the first time. The size of a transistor on a chip is determined by the wavelength of the light source divided by the numerical aperture, which is effectively how much a lens can further focus that beam of light. Soon, they switched to ultraviolet light, which due to its lower wavelength, eventually got down to printing features just 220 nanometers wide, with the subsequent improvements that were added to the lithography machines over time. In early 2000, we even made a step to start to use what we call immersion uh, technology. So there it's not about the wavelengths anymore, it's about the numerical aperture of the optic that you try to in increase. Resolution is more or less wavelengths dividing by numerical aperture. So we also work on that and we had the idea to put a lens, uh, to put a, a small amount of water under the, 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 the lens, that's what we call an immersion tool, in order to increase the numerical aperture for one, which is uh, physically the maximum you can get an optical system to 1.33, uh, which as a result uh, improved the resolution by as, as much, basically. So this was a big step. But for Moore's law to continue, for our computing power to keep growing, for technological advancements to keep moving forward, we needed to discover a new way of continuing to shrink the size of transistors. Back in the 90s, there were a few candidates that people thought could be the NGL, or Next Generation Lithography. Nano-imprint lithography, focused ion beam lithography, or quantum lithography were all considered potential options. But there was one more that ASML felt was the most likely candidate, and that is EUV, or extreme ultraviolet light, with a wavelength so small, it's almost X-ray. So for, for us as, a, as lithography people, again, going back to the, to the, the resolution, right? Uh, again, two ways to get the resolution down, wavelength or numerical aperture. After immersion, we, we felt we already had stretch physics, right? Because we, had, we were at NA of 1.33. So shortening the wavelengths was, for lithography people, the most obvious way to go. Therefore, EUV was very early on something that we thought is going to be useful. Now, of course, the question was, can it even work? Because you need to have the light source, and you need to have even material, optic, that can basically uh, reflect, in this case, the light, have a sufficient lifetime, etc., etc. So there were a lot of uh, real physics problems to decide if EUV could work. And the feeling was that this could work, because research had proven we could create light. 
It had proven we could find material that would be able to uh, deal with the UV light. So then the question was becoming a, an engineering question on how do we produce those tools in volume and with a productivity power, which is high enough to satisfy our customer needs. Many in the industry thought EUV was the most viable method for making transistors on the scale of a single nanometer. ASML was not the only company to invest their resources down this route. However, in 2018, 20 years after their research began, ASML's EUV machine was ready for high volume manufacturing, and they remain the only company to ever create an EUV lithography machine. But that is no surprise when you look at the complexity of the machine. The first challenge is in creating the extreme ultraviolet light. It's not something that occurs naturally on Earth, so it needs to be created. And it has to be both powerful enough so that it could work on a commercial scale, but not so powerful that it would destroy the machine. So we had to be able to produce 250 watt of EUV energy in order to make it uh, viable at our customer. Now that requirement became the technology challenge because we had to first get a source that could go to 250 watt. And then we, need, did, we also needed to have a tool that could survive 250 watt of EUV light. After some years of research, ASML decided the most effective way to generate extreme ultraviolet light would be to create a hot, dense, ionized plasma. The technology we were using, we looked at many of them initially, but the technology we thought was the most valuable to scale on power was basically the idea to heat tin droplet with very high power drive laser. We needed to do that to create the ability to generate those tin droplet. And to give you an idea, we need to create them at a, a frequency of uh, 20 kilohertz. So it means that every second we need to have 50,000 of those droplets being generated. And we needed a drive laser, a CO2 laser, with a power somewhere between 20 and 30 kilowatt to be able to generate enough EUV light. The plan was to shoot a laser at some tin droplets, which would create EUV. Molten tin droplets around 25 microns in diameter are ejected from a generator at 70 meters per second. As they fall, the droplets are hit first by a low-intensity laser pulse that flattens them into a pancake shape. Then a more powerful laser pulse vaporizes the flattened droplet to create a plasma that emits EUV light, which is captured and focused by a collecting mirror. And this all happens 50,000 times per second. And of course, the minute we started, we had no clue about anything. It didn't exist. You had a bunch of people in the research that thought, you know, they had it because they had seen one watt one day in a good day. And we had to bring it to uh, industrialization. And when you start doing those things, there is no history, there's no books, there is no knowledge. You have to learn everything. There were a few metals that were considered viable, 
but it was quickly discovered tin would be the most effective. Yeah, so tin is, is one of the only materials that uh, can both generate UV light, but also optically, I would say, uh, support uh, managing the light. Because the, the problem with UV light, so you, you have to generate it, right? So you have to excite electron to the right frequency. You can do that with, uh, with tin. There's not too many materials you can use for that. The system they designed worked by dropping 20 micron wide droplets of tin that were then fired at by two lasers. The first flattens the tin into a pancake shape and the second vaporizes it, creating a plasma and light, in this case, extreme ultraviolet light. And it wasn't until 2018 they demonstrated they were able to produce near 250 watts of EUV. So that was a good step. But then we had a second part of the problem to come, which is we have the light, what does it do to the system, right? And we started, for example, in order to, to send the light to the system, we, we have a first mirror, which we call a collector. And the collector is just focusing whatever light is being created into a beam, and the beam goes into the system. The initial lifetime of this collector, who is located in the chamber where we create the light, was two hours. Because what I didn't tell you yet is every time we hit this tin droplet, the tin has to go somewhere. And it was going on the collector. So within a few hours, we lost all reflectivity. So we had a light, but the light was not getting into the system. And we had to find a way in our plasma to remove this Debris. For commercial reasons, Christoph can't say exactly how they got around this debris problem, but he can say that the collector remains clear and reflective for over a year. So we did accept that this will go on the collector, but we found a way, tuning our plasma, to remove it as it was going there. So it was deposited, if you want, on the collector, but in some way it was removed right after that, using plasma. And that allowed us to extend the life of this collector to a few months. And as we speak, we have been able to extend that lifetime to more than a year. The next step is directing the EUV into a single beam that can be sent through the machine and create the required pattern for the chip. Most normal UV lithography machines use lenses to focus the light. But EUV is absorbed by almost all material including air, which is why this all has to take place in a vacuum. So ASML developed ultra-smooth, multi-layer mirrors to guide the EUV light. Each mirror has over a hundred layers of materials that they have engineered to be as effective as possible at reflecting EUV light. The light is guided to a reticle, which is a reflector that contains the pattern of the layer of the chip the machine needs to print. The beam of light is then sent towards the wafer, ready to print out the chip pattern. But this whole process has to be precise to the nanometer. To copy the whole pattern, the reticle is scanned through the light beam by the reticle stage, which must move with immense speed and precision without causing any vibration in the system. The reticle masking unit, or REMA, ensures light only falls on the desired parts of the reticle. 
This allows one reticle to be used for different layers or products, helping keep the price of chips down. A chip is built up of tens of layers, with the most advanced chips having more than a hundred layers. So each chip requires many different reticles. The wafer itself sits on a magnetically levitating wafer stage. The reticle pattern will be reproduced many times across the silicon wafer in separate exposures, and the wafer stage has to position the wafer to within a quarter of a nanometer for each exposure. To do this, the NXE includes a position sensor that is accurate to about the size of an atom, using it to check and adjust the wafer's position 20,000 times per second. The wafer stage also keeps the wafer flat and at a constant temperature. Even a difference of a few thousandths of a degree could ruin the entire chip. Every layer we expose has to be uh, exposed very accurately against the previous one. And very accurately means nanometer accurately. So we have to be accurate at a nanometer level while moving the stage at a very, very high speed and extremely high acceleration. So the acceleration of our stages is, is a lot higher than the acceleration of a fighter jet. Right? If you had to sit on it, it kills you. Right? And over time, we need to go even faster. So we're working today on, on stages for the, the, the reticle stage of our INA machine. We're looking at 30 to 40 G, right, which require also all kind of innovation on the type of motors you're going to use to get this acceleration going. The stage is floating on magnet, so a nice magnet, uh, you know, uh, base where uh, we make our stage float so that there is no friction, etc., etc. That also by itself, I could claim is as difficult as the droplet generator. But we had a bit more experience there. This was less of a, you know, a, a revolution. A laser, some tin droplets, and a collection of mirrors are the building blocks for the most complicated machine ever built. But it's the speed, accuracy, and reliability that really make this machine so special. The years of iterating, innovating, and testing has not been the work of ASML alone. There's been a constant collaboration between them, their clients, and their suppliers. You have to accept that you cannot do it alone. It's very important because, you know, sometimes company likes to, to protect everything and say, well, you know, we have to do it alone because if not, we take a risk. In, in our case, we only can work in, in a very open, collaborative environment. So we, we have to have this um, strong relationship with, uh, with our customer, with our supplier, with our engineers. But then, of course, the knowledge gradually improve. So we, that's why we are engineers, right? Because we, we don't start from scratch. We use what our predecessor have learned and we improve it. And, and we make sure that nothing gets lost so that we can keep going. But that's also why, you know, sometimes when people ask us, are you afraid that someone could copy EUV? Uh, usually we just smile. Uh, and we wish the best to everyone. <laughs> because it's so difficult. You, you cannot just start it from scratch. That's what we believe, because it's too much. ASML's EUV machines are around the size of a bus 
and cost more than $150 million. But they are the only company to crack this technology, and all the world's biggest chip manufacturers like Intel, TSMC, and Samsung are amongst their clients. This machine is the reason why technology has continued to innovate and improve. Just try to imagine if one day Apple decide there is no more innovation on the chip. What's happened to the consumer? Well, you may not like it. And what's happened to Apple? If they don't innovate anymore, it's a matter of time until their competition, who may be two, three, four years behind, is going to catch up. So big problem for Apple. Big problem for TSMC that provide a chip to Apple. Big problem for us. So you have also there this very virtuous appetite to continue the innovation. And the world, the good news, wants to make use of this innovation. So today, you take any major application on health, on energy transition, on automotive, anything that's happened in your house, anything. Any major innovation or application, any major progress will be based on the silicon platform on a semiconductor platform. So you have more and more apl application coming the way, our way. This means that innovation can't stop. Whether Moore's law continues to see the doubling of chip capabilities every two years or not, chips will have to keep improving. And despite EUV lithography only coming to market in the last five years, ASML cannot rest on that success. They are continuing to innovate and improve on that machine so they can remain at the forefront of chip-making technology. Yeah, so we think that uh, EUV will be improved, so we'll carry this innovation for at least, I would say, 10, 15 years. But we, we also don't claim that this is the end. You know, back to my uh, accumulating knowledge, I mean, you can dr dream for the next 10, 15 years. After that, there's too much speculation. Right, then you have to learn again and see where it may break or not. Uh, and today we feel we have enough uh, you know, room to innovate without changing things too much. And we are going to, to do that. And we're already discussing with our customer, with our supplier, how we, we may be able to do that. Inevitably, just like with previous lithography systems, the limits of what EUV is capable of on a commercial scale will eventually be reached and a new major breakthrough to keep reducing the size of transistors will be needed. So to make sure they stay ahead of the competition, ASML invests heavily into its R&D. Our uh, R&D team has been growing 10-15% uh, systematically for the last at least you know, 10 years, most probably more than that. And we, we continue to do that because you know, back to Moore's law, the, the real belief we have is as long as our engineers have ideas, Moore's law will keep going. And the good news is our customer believe the same, our supplier believe the same, so that there, there's a lot of uh, innovation. And what we don't know yet, hopefully we find out, uh, you know, in five, six, seven years from now. And one of the challenges ASML faces is getting the best and brightest engineers to come work for them. 
And Christoph believes for any young engineer keen to work on the cutting edge of technology, there is no better place to come than ASML. You know, the story about innovation, the story about the investment uh, I gave you, you know, t- today we still invest more than 15% of our revenue into R&D. If you are an engineer, I think it's a very important number to look at, right? Because if you go to a company that still invests that much, and, and our revenue is it's not small by now, then you know that there is a place where you most probably have a chance to do something great. And I think if you're an engineer living university, you want to be able to do something great, right? That's still the dream of every engineer is to create something and see it coming to life. We create this environment, and there I think that the, the rhythm of innovation in some way protect us from that. Because, you know, every two years, our customer needs a new product. So if we become lazy, slow, uh, inefficient, we won't be able to do that. The microchip industry impacts every aspect of people's lives. And over the last few years, many industries have been hit due to supply chain issues within the chip manufacturing industry. The automotive industry was estimated to take a hit of more than $200 billion in 2021 alone due to the shortage in chips. And this issue has caught the attention of the world's governments. In April 2023, the UK government announced a £1 billion investment into the semiconductor chip sector. That pales into comparison to the $50 billion the US government is putting towards onshoring their chip production. And the EU passed the CHIPS Act, providing over 40 billion euros in funding for the industry. The global importance this industry and ASML as a market leader have cannot be understated. Securing the future advancement and production of chips is viewed as a matter of national security for countries. It's impossible to know what the industry or the technology being used will look like in 20 or 30 years time. But to ensure that technology continues to improve and advance, the chip sector needs continuous investment into R&D. After all, an idea that is viewed as almost impossible today, in 30 years, could be the basis for the most important and advanced machine ever built. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, and hosted by me and Rian Owen. Editing by Will North. Series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own world-leading machine is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media, and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.